0: Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is police corruption, an issue that has rarely been out of the headlines over the course of the Jokowi government. We've seen the veto of Budi as minister, then his aborted nomination as police chief, the struggles to keep low-ranking cop Labora Satoras behind bars to serve his 15-year sentence for money laundering, fuel stockpiling and illegal logging, And also the testimony of executed narcotics criminal freddie budiman who alleged that he'd made payoffs to various state institutions including the police to import drugs to discuss corruption within the indonesian police known as polri and the prospects for reform i'm joined by dr jackie baker lecturer in southeast asian politics at murdoch university and research fellow at the asia research center jackie thanks for joining us
1: hi it's such a pleasure to be here
0: so Could I start by asking you, how would you characterise corruption within the Indonesian police?
1: I think we can think about corruption within the Indonesian police as really endemic and systematic. In fact, what I do with um, understanding corruption within the Indonesian police is look at how different institutions within the police, and particularly the institutions of budgeting and of the wider culture around accounting really um, combine to uh, legitimize and valorise corruption within the Indonesian police and to make it really necessary to the functioning of officers in that environment.
0: And I mean, why is it necessary to the institution for there to be corruption within the Indonesian police?
1: So for a really long time, Polri has been substantially underfunded. And the roots of that lie in ABRI, which is the National Armed um, Forces, where the police were merged with the military for 32 years. And so for those 32 years, the police were kind of the last on the receiving end of, the, of budgets. And the, the military took the most of it, and the police kind of got the scraps. And so as part of that, um, the, the Indonesian police established a system by which they started to self-finance. And they sought for what we call off-budget funds or funds outside of the official budget in order to resource the institution.
0: Is it really just about budgetary shortfalls? Because, I mean, when we talk about police corruption, we often hear these stories of fantastically rich officers well beyond what their salaries could ever account for. Is it budgetary shortfalls primarily or is there also Personal enrichment at
1: play. What we can see is the way that the budget is actually allocated is priori- is reflecting the kind of dynamics of power within Polri. And by that I mean the kind of the elites are getting the, the biggest cut and the bottom levels are um, being deprived of resources. And what that does is incentivizes this search for off budget funding. And when you go and look for off budget funding, well you have a lot of autonomy and discretion in securing the nature of that funding and in managing those off budget funds. I mean, after all, you've gone out and looked for uh, monies outside of the budget that you uh, you will use in order to do your job. And that also means that there's a whole um, set of incentives around uh, personal enrichment there. You have the discretion to use it for the institution, which the institution will applaud and celebrate. Or you can have the discretion to use it on interests, on your own interests and wealth accumulation.
0: And to be clear, when you're talking about raising off-budget funds how do the police do that what sort of what sort of things are we talking about
1: so there are multiple ways that police do that and it really depends on your unit and on your department and where you are where you are ranked so one of the key ways that they do that is to create protection rackets. And in a, for a very long time, for instance, police received monies from you know local gambling outfits, from uh, local brothels, from entertainment venues. And these were kind of, you know, not, they were sort of protection monies in some regard, but they were also just predictable Payoffs from uh, local local businesses that didn't want to be bothered by the police, and if they didn't pay, whether well, they were bothered by the police. But a more important way for police to establish money is by connecting to um, donors or sponsors. And those donors can be uh, from the criminal world, for instance, people who are drug runners or, as I said, uh, they manage sex workers and what have you, or they can be formal corporate types. So, you know, heads of companies, heads of businesses. And what they do is they provide uh, police officers with an ongoing kind of stipend. Uh, They'll particularly be interested in officers that have some kind of prestige or look like they're going to be heading up or be promoted within the police. And these businesses, these business people kind of want to secure a police officer in order to provide protection for their overall business and the workings of their business it, should it be in case that they have some kind of legal case in the future so these are two really important ways that police attract monies or look for external but mo- monies but there's also all sorts of monies that you could acquire from just from the nature of your position for instance if you are a detective there are monies to be made from processing people's cases uh, if you are in charge of procurement obviously there are important equipment to equipment be, to be bought and there's places you can skim off there. So it really depends on where you are within the police force and what kinds of authorities you control and what resources you have at your disposal.
0: Some of those sources of off-budget funds are clearly illegal, you know, protection rackets, skimming off contracts. But what about the donations from business people you mentioned, are they illegal in the Indonesian
1: system? Well, according to the um, 2002 police laws, it doesn't specify that receiving monies from um, third-party agents is illegal, but there's really... Considerable prestige around securing these kinds of funds within the police. It's this real sign that you're a policeman that's up and coming, that you're able to to make money, and you're able to um, sort of build the kinds of relationships key to establishing the financial security of the institution and of your unit and of your department.
0: And I mean, is it possible to estimate, you know, between the protection records, the other skimming off uh, these sort of donations, how Large an amount we're talking about in off-budget funds. I mean, is it more than what the government's putting into the police? Is it a fraction of that? What what sort of scale are we looking at?
1: When when I started looking at the off-budget economy, the Indonesian police budget was around um, twenty trillion rupiah per year, and it's since subsequently raised in two thousand and sixteen to about seventy trillion, which is a huge amount of money.
0: Seventy trillion rupiah is about seven billion dollars.
1: But when I started looking at about, you know, when the figures were around twenty to forty trillion, just having a sense of how an ordinary police station funds itself, how it looks for money, how it um, how money um, circulates within that police station, I would have said that um, off-budget funds were probably financing ninety percent of that police station. So the off-budget economy would far outstrip what the formal budget provided for the police. St- For the police institution.
0: You mentioned at the beginning that sort of the institution is set up so that officers at the top get a larger cut than those at the bottom end and I mean that intuitively makes sense but how hierarchical is corruption within the police off-budget fundraising? Uh, Is it something that very strictly follows the chain of command or does it in fact create something of I guess an informal hierarchy outside of the formal chain of command?
1: I think until recently, the patterns of corruption that we've seen in the Indonesian police have really closely mapped on to the kind of ranks within the Indonesian police. So the best and the most lucrative, but also the safest and the most predictable and the most morally palatable opportunities for, for revenue raising were always clustered at the top. The bottom rungs, on the other hand, would get would have to make the opportunities where they found them, and that meant that they got money from more unpredictable and vulnerable sources, and from sources uh, like drugs, which were really and vice industries like gambling, which were really morally unpalatable and would lead to judgments about you as a kind of a bad person or as a as a high risk taker. But I think um, the case of Labora Taurus, who is a very low ranking cop who was found in the, uh, West Papua in a town of Sorong, to have uh, 1.5 trillion rupiah in one of his accounts. And his, what we found with this case was that low-ranking officers were also making enormous amounts of money through corruption, monies that seemed to far outstrip um, their his seniors. Uh, so I think what, what we're seeing is that the, kinda, the dynamics of corruption in the post-authoritarian era are... Are heightening. Hyper, we've got a kind of hyper corruption occurring, wherein officers, even at the bottom, are now able to make to summon sums that uh, challenge the kind of established hierarchies of how money has been distributed traditionally within the police.
0: Is it possible to advance within the Indonesian police without being corrupt? Are there, are there any clean cops making their way up the chain?
1: I think a few years ago, I would have said that it's impossible to advance within the national police without being corrupt. Um, but increasingly, I'm seeing that officers are bringing other kinds of resources to the system. So, for instance, if there's a, as a position is opened up and what would traditionally happen or what would happen in the most cynical of ways is that you would have a bidding war between police officers and their sponsors for that position and the highest bidder would win. But I think now that system is um, becoming less predictable and officers are able to bring other kinds of resources to that position. And those resources might include um, a lot of social legitimacy, for instance, or very high educational qualifications or the ability to secure funds from the international community if they've had an established uh, relationship with donors, for instance. So it suggests that while money is important within the very heavy competition for a posting, we're seeing other comparable resources come into play.
0: So why do the police value those other types of resources?
1: I think the police are increasingly conscious of the need to professionalise, or at least of the need to project a professional image. And so it's, a, it's becoming increasingly necessary to promote people on the basis of merit, and to put good people in the job. Now, this is not uh, sort of across the board, obviously. But if you have a fantastic kind of uh, model officer emerge from this deeply corrupt system like Tito Karnavian, well, these sort of people provide a really great face to the police. And so there is um, there is it, there's more possibility to create consensus so that a person like that should go forward.
0: Now, I mean, if you've got an institution that is raising most of its funds through off-budget financing the various forms you've mentioned uh, a lot of it sort of explicitly corrupt how does this affect actual police work by the indonesian police and um, you know i'm here always reminded of stephen sherlock's and a study of the indonesian parliament where basically says for indonesian party leaders policy the precise wording of laws is typically their lowest order priority could you say similarly that law enforcement is the last priority of many police
1: there's certainly times that i've felt that way about the police hanging out with police officers sitting around just watching them you know the the key thing on their mind is money the key thing on their mind is how to get money how to find money how to get more money than others how to secure money how to make that money predictable money has been the principal concern for police officers and it's not money for necessarily for self-enrichment, but money to secure your position because you're conscious that everybody else is seeking money in order to secure their position. So it's not necessarily money just for greed, but money to so that you don't get destabilised in other ways, right? But at the same time, you know, I'm wondering whether that's too cynical a position. So, for instance, police are... Very, very concerned about their public image. Police are very, very concerned about the media and how they report cases. Uh, one thing I heard from police officers was that there was a story that you know every police national police chief, the first thing that chief will do every single morning is open up Compass, which is the national daily, and Postcota, which is a a kind of n- local rag, uh, which often reports on criminal matters. And the police chief, the national police chief, will you know, sort of thumb through these two newspapers very, very carefully. And so police officers are really conscious that the way they're being ranked in the absence of other kinds of mechanisms uh, for performance is through the media. So for that reason... You know, it is important to make sure that your area is not an area that is, you know, is known for criminal activity, that every now and then to kind of launch some sort of raid or some kind of uh, sweeping in order to keep keep things relatively clean. So there is, law enforcement is certainly an issue for police officers, but it is a secondary issue and it is an is- issue that we might say quite cynically uh, serves their self-interest.
0: Well I was gonna say the way you're describing it doesn't sound like law enforcement for law enforcement's sake.
1: Yeah. If you work within sort of poor and marginalized communities as I have in Jakarta, you know, the police are really an absent force in terms of a provision of some kind of law and order. If anything, the police are present, but as a as a force of brutality and of extortion. So there isn't a lot of traditional law enforcement happening in people's ordinary neighbourhoods. That said, when communities are very upset about the level of crime in their um, in their area and they're able to vocalise that in a way that gets social attention, police will act.
0: So they're very, very conscious of public pressure then?
1: Yeah, and the reason that they are conscious of that is because of their rivalry with the military. I mean, the police are constantly ranked as the most corrupt or second most corrupt institution within the within the state. Meanwhile, the TNI or the national the Indonesian military and constantly ranked by people as having the most legitimacy, as being the most professional, and the police are deeply conscious of this, and envy the level of social legitimacy that the police, that the military enjoy. And so, for this reason, it's a driver to um, to act in cases where the, where people are calling for it.
0: Okay. Is it only on social legitimacy that the police are competing with the military, or are they also competing on this illicit fundraising?
1: Yeah, so this has been an ongoing um, source of debate. I mean, ever since the police and the military were separated in 1999, we've seen, at least every year, a few cases where you'll have police and military forces um, clashing over what seems to be some kind of trivial issue. It might be a a girl or uh, it seems like kind of masculine bragging or what have you. And the kind of backstory to these incidents is is often um, explained as, Um, A clash over resources. For instance, the military may control a particular protection racket that the police are trying to co-opt. And we saw a lot of these sorts of incidences um, in the early years of the separation. Um, And they've they've reduced in some ways, but they continue every year. We would have a few. So we've come to know. The police and the military as rivalrous over these kinds of black market economies but what I found in my research was that more often than not actually police and militaries were co- cooperating over off-budget funds and the reason they were doing that was because it was better to find some sort of mutually agreeable consensus than to invite media and social attention by conflict by getting into conflict over it. So they often, I often found police inviting the military into activities that would have some kind of uh, revenue for the military, with the idea that, well, they're our brothers and, and they need to eat too. And if they don't, they'll really create problems for us. So I think more dangerous is the fact that police and militaries have a kind of pact around off-budget revenue raising. And that really kind of stitches it up.
0: So, I mean, you've got these third-party business people providing funds. You've got other explicitly illegal activities. How does all of this off-budget fundraising affect, uh, I guess, government oversight of the police? Uh, what, What sort of autonomous power... Does it provide either the institution or the officers within it?
1: I mean, you've absolutely hit it on the head there, Dave, because budgets are a real accountability mechanism. They're one way that we enforce compliance, particularly over institutions that have quite a lot of coercive and um, legal power. So budgets are a really important way by which we get institutions to account for their activities, to rein them in, to ensure that they are engaging in activities that suit the government's overall purposes. And when you build a budget outside of the purview of normal state accounting that allows for considerable autonomy and discretion on the be- on the behalf of that institution so that institution can strategize and plan and build resources in ways that uh, really subvert the kind of agreed upon decision making processes that we would expect in a functioning government this makes an institution able to kind of go rogue from the wider apparatus of government
0: is that what we're seeing
1: i don't think we're seeing polri you know go rogue as such but they do enjoy considerable autonomy, much more autonomy than we would expect in a democratic system. But also comparatively, most police forces who have had to engage in a process of reform after the fall of authoritarianism, that process and the the tone and the direction of reform has been determined by outside outside sources, by non-police figures, by ministers, by presidents and what have you. In Indonesia... The process and the direction of reform is almost completely controlled by the police.
0: How much consensus do you have within the police over over reform? I mean, you mentioned it's now possible for officers to rise up through the ranks through things other than simple financial clout. Do you do you have kind of a reformist faction within the police when we've seen internal conflicts over things like Chokoi's attempt to nominate Bodigonawan as police chief is that a fight over the direction of reform, or is that simply competition between different corrupt factions within the police?
1: It's certainly competition between different groups within the police that would like to consolidate their power. So while everyone in the police might say they're pro-reform and very few police officers would say oh I'm, I'm anti-reform, there's almost no police officer that would agree that reform should be directed from outside of the police. And in fact even when we look at Pro reform police officers like Tito Carnavian, our new police chief, he's also arguing for a process of reform that is in, almost entirely in house, that uses in house institutions, in house departments, and that is very amenable to the groups that we might call non reformers, but who would probably better just consider other factions within the police.
0: Okay, and why is, say, an officer like Tito Carnavian? so determined to keep reform in house if as you're saying that kind of works against some of what outsiders might consider to be the desirable outcomes of reform
1: Potentially the new National Police Chief thinks this is the only way to be able to bring in some of the reforms he'd like to to do. I mean, he's suggested that all police officers now need to fill in a kind of an account of their wealth and their assets. He's suggested that police officers who would like to start a new business, for instance, that needs to be shared with Internal Affairs, that proposal, to make sure it doesn't conflict with their position. So I imagine that he thinks these are quite novel and powerful reforms that may do something to curtail corruption within the force. However, my perspective is that without opening this up to external review and utilising other kinds of forms of horizontal and vertical accountability, it's really not going to have that bigger impact.
0: Do you think... Tito is determined to have a, a big impact on the governance of the police.
1: And I think Tito has been bred in many ways for this position I mean he's he's a real golden boy he's a real once in a lifetime opportunity for the police to have some really quality leadership. I mean, the man's resume is spectacular. He's clearly very educated. He has a PhD um, in terrorism. He's been educated in um, Auckland as well and in Exeter. He's had a lot of interaction with international community. He has established relationships with uh, very well-regarded human rights NGOs. Uh, Tito has been in many ways been positioning himself for this job for a very long time and quite rightfully so. But I think his his attempt to reform is really going to be scuppered by a couple of things. Firstly, by the fact that his model for reform has no external accountability um, uh, built into it. The question of uh, something more radical, like legislative reform and reforming the uh, police uh, law, which is really the heart of so many of the police's oversight problems, is really off the que- off the table. You know, he's not talking about that at all. Um, but Tito also works within a wider environment and that environment is one where, in, where in which we've seen the military really power building over, under the Jokowi administration. We've seen the military take sort of openly take back a lot of the roles um, that they took in under the new order, roles in development. Uh, We're seeing them arrest uh, potential communist sympathisers. They're allowed to subject them to interrogation before they release them to the police. All of these things by the police will be regarded as deeply disconcerting they'll be regarded as the military are back to take our power. And so trying to enact significant reforms to to accountability within the police at a time wherein the police feel that they need to consolidate power is going to be a real problem for for the National Police Chief.
0: If even a National Police Chief with the sort of exceptional background that you've outlined for Tito Carnavian faces you know, very severe obstacles to reform and in fact, as you're describing, is is not interested in external oversight. What about on the government side of things? Do you see from Jokowi personally or senior figures within his government a real interest in establishing external oversight over the police?
1: Well, absolutely not. And I don't think um, that's something, I think horizontal accountability and rule of law is something that the president is unfortunately very very weak on. I mean I think we need to congratulate Jokowi for appointing Tito Kanavian to the national police chief position. And I know he's done it with the you know the specific directive to reform the police but Jokowi is also undermining Tito's position by, for instance, recently calling in the Attorney-General's office and the police chief to remind them that uh, the war on corruption could be... you know, a, a kind of a hindrance to the government's economic policies, and to make sure that they've really got their facts right before they take anybody to trial. And also not to tip off the media that there might be a prosecution pending. So in some ways, you've got Jokowi telling, giving the National Police Chief really mixed signals. On one side, he's saying, Tito, you know, go forth and eradicate corruption. But on the other side, his own uh, record on corruption is really mixed at sometimes And for Tito Carnavian, it's going to be really difficult to build the alliances that he needs, or the solid, or the um, consent that he needs within the police to eradicate corruption when the president himself is sort of undermining that agenda.
0: So, I mean, if Jokowi was interested in pushing police reform, what would he do? Uh, what what would be some basic steps to give impetus to it?
1: Well, firstly, I think we need, you know, major law reform to the police re- police laws of 2002. We need a better system of vertical and horizontal accountability for the police. We need to revitalise the National Police Commission, which was originally designed to be, uh, you know, a point of public accountability for the police. That needs to be stronger, it needs to be more independent, and it needs to be able to act on um, complaints that the public submit to that commission in a way that really has some teeth. You know, I think also... To eradicate corruption, I think the president really needs to signal to the KPK that the that the that the police police elite are fair game. You know, so far the KPK have only trialled four senior police generals for corruption charges. You know, this is obviously not proportional to the amount of corruption that is occurring within the Indonesian police. So I think we really need to frighten the police elite by uh, pursuing them for corruption charges and making some real a, a real fanfare around that.
0: Okay, and I mean beyond. Jokowi, the police themselves. Is there an organised constituency within Indonesia that's pushing for those sort of reforms?
1: I think it's deeply disorganised. And I think one of the problems with um, a a push for a police reform from outside, from within NGOs and think tanks, is that it's been really subject to the politics of um, competition with the military. The police see that when people call for uh, reform for the police, they think of them as proxies for the military who are really trying to weaken the police. So there's very little trust from the police that there are uh, objective professional voices that uh, that can be believed that calling for their reform. And this has meant that the politics of this has really disorganized the front for police reform within Indonesia.
0: Finally, with that situation, a disorganised constituency, a president giving mixed signals, a uh, police chief with an exceptional background but who favours internal processes. If you were to gaze into your crystal ball, uh, where would you see police reform sitting at the at the end of Jokowi's term three years from now?
1: I'd like to be an optimist on this, Dave. I'd love to say we're going to see some real changes within the Indonesian police. Um, my feeling is that what we're going to see are some really important changes, um, but that are going to only really sort of tip be the tip of the iceberg in terms of the necessary reforms that Polri needs. And the term that Chokowi and uh, the new police chief has is not long enough to really address the systemic corruption within the Indonesian police.
0: Okay. On that note, there's uh, so much more I could ask you, Jackie, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today.
1: Thanks very much, Dave, and thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Jackie Baker, lecturer in Southeast Asian politics at Murdoch University and research fellow in the Asia Research Centre. Don't forget you can find the entire Talkie Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. Please do take the time to rate or review the podcast on iTunes as well. My colleague, Dr. Ken Satyawan, will be back with the next installment of Talkie Indonesia on 8 September. Until then, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.